Thank you, Joe. <clears throat> Take your Bibles and turn with me to Job chapter 1. As we continue to look at this doctrine of God's providence, we're getting close to the end here, just a, a couple more weeks, and uh, we'll tie this up. Uh, but looking at Job in three sermons, really through the three, what I see is the three main characters of Job. We looked at Job last week and Job's trials, and this week, Satan. I'm calling God's devil, and you'll see why shortly, and you probably already know why if you've read Job 1 and 2, which we're going to do here in just a moment. Uh, and also next week, we'll look at God. Look at those last chapters of Job. Of course, we'll see how his friends in the middle intermingle with this. But as we consider the doctrine of God's providence, uh, and this morning we'll be taking the Lord's Supper after, uh, when, when, at, uh, toward the end of the, the sermon. And so we'll just go right into that from this. I'll tie them together. And so be preparing our hearts, be praying. Uh, examining yourselves, preparing your hearts for that, and then after that, welcoming new members today. So uh, we'll be a little longer today, but uh, for good reason, uh, as we worship the Lord together. We never want to be in a hurry, do we, to, 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 uh, to get on to better things because they're not better things. So let us hear the word of the Lord. Job chapter 1 is here inspired by God's Holy Spirit. I'll read chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a, fat, a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So you have a scene on earth and now a scene in heaven, scene two. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan, okay, there's the scene on earth and heaven, council in heaven now back on earth. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups 
and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters eating and drinking wine in your oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, fell upon the young people. They are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. See that? He fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here comes the verdict, the summary. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we consider Job, I pray that the words of my mouth, the dedication of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, a rock and a redeemer. God, you would put strength in our bones, that you would use this text and this story, this true story, to put steel in our spiritual backbones. We might trust you more when life hits the fan. We know it's just a matter of time if we're not there now. We be strengthened and nourished and encouraged by your inspired, inerrant word to live life in a fallen world all out for your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So what do we do with the devil? Well, I tried to tell Joe, he said he's going to change this morning. I suggested to hell with the devil, which is a, an old song from the 80s. That's not my attempt to use a curse word in the pulpit. That is an old song. It probably didn't fit this morning, but uh, we're going to see that we probably shouldn't say that because Satan is suffering from what I would call a bit of atheism about himself these days. Well, atheism when it comes to Satan. A Barnacle poll a few Years back showed that four out of ten Christians now, don't miss this, four out of ten Christians, evangelical Christians, agreed that Satan is not a living being but is a symbol of everything that's evil. A little bit of atheism there in the church towards Satan. 75% believe God is literally true. That's, that's good, but they don't believe the devil is literally a, a literal living being who does mischief. And if Americans polled more than 60%, just plain old Americans, said they believe in some kind of God, little g, but not a literal force of evil called Satan, as the Bible presents him, as Job presents him here. It's obvious to me that Satan is doing his work awfully well since those numbers are true. He's good at what he does. Luther saying, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. And I'm here to tell you this morning, based on what Job says, that is true. That is true. We've done Satan great favors, haven't we? By putting him on deviled ham packages. You know that devil, right? You eat devil ham, don't give me that. You know you do. Potted meat, boy, that's good stuff. Get you some crackers, you know. Got the devil on the, on the package. 
And that's the devil, the Satan in the popular mind, right? He's a court jester, a kind of a clownish creature with horns, got the little horns, you know, the cloven feet, got a tail, glows bright red, you know, sort of the church ladies, Satan, you know, if you know who that is, sort of that is Satan today. Of course, this image is rooted in church history. The Middle Ages, they took Satan very seriously, and they thought one of the ways one of the ways to scorn Satan or to, one of the ways to flee from Satan is to make fun of him. And so they drew this caricature. And so that's been passed down for about 500 years now. This, they caricatured him because they were afraid of him. And that was their way of fleeing from Satan, was making fun of him, mocking him. And so people invented this ludicrous portrayal of him. And that continues today on our devil ham, right? So that, that's where this comes from. If you drive on I-65 south of Birmingham, Alabama, you'll see a big sign out in the middle of the pasture that says, go to church or the devil will get you. And it has this devil, the potted ham devil, the, pot, the devil ham, he's out there, he's on that sign. If you've driven on 65, you'll see that's huge. And I agree with the first part, go to church, the devil will get you, right? The devil has sent some people to church, <laughs> evidently, as we look at evangel- cross evangelicalism, Right? But I think Christians can take two equally dangerous, dangerous approaches to Satan. They can do what I think Reformed Christians tend to do sometimes, and that is to ignore him. To see this as kind of, to, to, to look at Satan literally, to believe in a literal Satan is kind of academically uh, incredulous. You know, we don't, it's kind of silly, kind of dumb and makes us feel like, you know, fundamentalists or something like that. And we are fundamentalists. So let's just get that on the table. We are, right? We're being the fundamentals of the faith in that sense, of course. So we can do that, and I think that's more our tendency, or we can obsess over him, like some, you know, I used to go to a church where they rebuked Satan, they prayed more to Satan, they addressed him more than they did God, I felt like sometimes, and they gave him a whole lot of power, more than he really has, even though he's a powerful being, as we'll see. We have to avoid those two ditches, I think. But we see Satan, we meet him right here, just right head on. In these incredible scenes, I mean, I've, I've read this and read this hundreds of times in my life, and still I'm fascinated by Satan's appearance here. Because here in Job 1, he appears at this cabinet meeting in heaven between God and his angels. Whether he's been invited or not, we're not sure. And so Satan goes out, he uh, makes a, a wager with God, God takes the wager, and so Satan harnesses the, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans in a lightning storm and a tornado and absolutely wipes out everything Job has. And God says, you can't touch him. You can't touch this, right? You can't touch him. And then we come to chapter 2. Let's read that. Verse, first 10 verses. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Here we go, the cabinet meeting again. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Asked him again. Satan answered the Lord and said, from coming, from roaming to and fro on the earth and going up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him. Don't miss the language there. You, Satan, incited me, God, against him to destroy him without reason. This isn't sin in Job as his friends are going to contend for long chapters. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Ha! Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his own life. But stretch out your hand and touch 
his bone and his flesh, his body, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has in your hand, only spare his life. You can't kill him. You can touch him, but you can't kill him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery, that's Job, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes mourning. That's all he's got left. And Mrs. Job, but wait. Then his wife said to him, he probably just wishes you'd have been, just keep this to yourself, right? Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we receive, and don't miss this, shall we receive good from God and not evil? The word is ra'ach, which means adversity is another good translation. God's not the author of evil, we know that. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So there you have it again. Cabinet meeting in heaven between God and his angels. I guess he's going to give them assignments, send them out. It seems, maybe, we don't know the rest of the story. We know what angels do. They minister to us, right? They're going to, you know, want to give the Thomases, going to send them out. They're going to have a hard day. Need to send them an angel, keep them, you know, on the road. And the Robinsons, boy, they're having a hard time. Their football team lost last night. You need to do something nice for them today, you know. Things like that. I don't know. Maybe that's it. But this cabinet meeting and Satan appears, asks for God permission to strike Job. Because he says, Job hasn't proven anything because we've not struck him. And so God takes the wager again, strikes him with boils and turns his wife against him. And we're going to, after that, you meet three friends. Oh, good. Here come his friends from the church. They're coming to console him and they're quiet for like a week. And then you read the rest and you said, would that they had been quiet for the rest of the time. These are his friends. And with friends like this, <laughs> and he's enemies, right? Good theology in a lot of places. Terrible application. And there's, there's plenty of application for us in that, especially us who love good theology and love to apply it to other people's lives. That's where we are. And so let's look at Satan. We're going to focus in on Satan. Looked at Job last week, Satan this week. Who is Satan? Let's look at the person of Satan. Several things here, okay? We're going to look at several places in the Bible, and you can just stay with me. I'll, I'll quote these. And first, he's the serpent who duped Eve in Eden, the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. He is marked by malice and fury and cruelty directed against God, against God's truth and God's people. He is the original sinner, the inventor of sin, the originator of sin. Satan. It all comes back to him, doesn't it? Secondly, he's the God of this world. Well, what do you mean by that? I thought God was the God of Israel. I thought the whole purpose of this entire series is to show that God is providential over every molecule and atom and subatomic particle. Good question. I mean, God not the true king of this world? Well, I think the New King James Version renders this a little better than the ESV, more accurately. He's the God of this age. I think world there is better translated age. The God of this age, meaning this worldly mindset expressed by the prevailing secular God-rejecting worldview. We see this writ large in our culture in America today, don't we? And it's nothing new. We harp on it all the time, but it really isn't anything new, is it? It's as old as Genesis 3. But Satan is not God. We're not dualists who believe in two equal but opposite powers, one 
full of darkness, one full of light, and a battle, and a big war, and who's going to, for, for all the marbles, and who's going to win. No, we don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's foreign to Scripture. Satan is a created being, and he doesn't have the power of God, and yet he is more powerful and crafty than human beings. He's a lot smarter than you are, and I am. He knows how to get you. Read the screw tape letters. I've recommended several books, by the way, on Satan and Job out there on my little pedestal. And so screw tape letters is one of my favorite, my, probably my favorite C.S. Lewis book. Is that how it goes? I don't know, but it's, it's, it's a good read because the demons harass us, don't they? He's more crafty than we are. His craft and power are great. We're armed with cruel hate. He's a, he's, he is stronger than us, but he's weaker than God. He's an angel of light who disguises evil as good and good as evil. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us this. He's a master deceiver, a master at subtlety. I mean, look at our whole nation now. We have an entire society of people convinced that there are more than two genders. You think that's not the work of the devil? That there are three or four or five or however many genders you want there to be. That we ought to celebrate when a person cannot tell whether they're a man or a woman and seek to correct it. That's to be celebrated. You think that's not satanic delusion? What else could it be? The very essence of satanic delusion, isn't it? I mean, we have a society that thinks it's good and right to murder a baby in its mother's womb. A New York Times columnist or editorial this week, this past week, you can find this. Don't find it now, later, this afternoon argued that it's better to have an abortion than it is to adopt. Because she was adopted and her life has been a living hell because of adoption. This is just pure satanic delusion. And, and the, the liberals, the, the liberal, the secularists will go, they'll stop at nothing to protect Roe versus Wade. And it's about to go down, I think. Let's keep praying for that. Just as, as an aside, pray church, pray. I've been praying for this for 30 years. I think we can see the end, and Satan's not going to go down without a fight. It's satanic delusion, isn't it? Under what, women's access to health care or reproductive rights. No, it's just satanic delusion. He's the prince and power of the air, Ephesians 2 tells us. He's the head of the fallen angels. He's the kind of the five-star general of an army, a vast army of evil soldiers. We call demons. They're working against you right now. Maybe to distract you. And maybe to critique the sermon and the exegesis and not worry about applying this to yourself or something else. I don't know. It's how I tend to think. Okay, so I'm going to, a lot of this is how I tend to, things I struggle with. New Testament gives him the title of Diabolos, his accuser. His chief name, his name means adversary. He's the chief opponent of God and his people. Or Apollyon, which John Bunyan picked up on, the Holy War. And in Pilgrim's Progress, it means destroyer in Revelation 9-11. Scripture hints that his demons are assigned to oversee certain regions and certain peoples. In Daniel 10, the angel of the Lord came to Daniel and answered his prayer and said, The prince of the kingdom of Persia battled him for 21 days battled the, uh, until uh, Michael the archangel, one of his chief princes of God, came to help him. So it might be that we have a demon assigned to us. I don't know. We don't know that, do we? We like to, we'd like to know. Some of those novels are fascinating. This present darkness I read all that years ago. Boy, that was really fascinating. Is that how it is? It might be. I don't know. We have reason to believe that. I mean, they're, we're, they're, they're watching us and they're out to get us. And that's not, that's not redneck religion. That's the Bible, folks. 
Satan is real. His minions are real, and they want to have us. We're going to see here in a moment his work. I mean, there's missionaries who tell us feeling oppression and darkness. I've been to Haiti, and I mean, I never felt evil like I felt there before. I'm preaching, and a witch doctor comes out and starts chanting and dancing and preaching the gospel. I've never felt evil. It just, it, it, gave, it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Evil's in this world. There are places you can feel it. In the mountains where I come from in North Georgia, people always said, you know, you can feel a certain evil here. And it's, there are places that's really true. And that's subjective, I realize, but it's true, isn't it? You, you know it is. He's a dangerous, ferocious enemy, described as a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5, 8. Described as a dragon in Revelation 12, 9 and 20, uh, verse 2. Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. End of the time, he'll be thrown down. This is a vision of the end of the time, but he's a, he's a dragon. He is, he's the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels are thrown down with him. He's Christ's chief foe. Where did he come from? Well, we're not we don't know a lot other than he was one of God's created angels who rebelled against God before he tempted Adam and Eve, likely. Scripture doesn't exactly reveal when this took place. His sin was likely pride. That's what theologians have always said. I think that could probably be true. I mean, some scholars see in Revelation 12 uh, supporting the view that he took a third of the angels with him when he fell. We know that he definitely has, from other places in the Scripture, demons working for him, this vast army. Well, that's who he is. And there's lots more we can say about him. That's kind of scratching the surface. Here's what he does. The work of Satan. Well, he tempts us. Some of you right now, you're tempted to doze and not listen to the Word of God. You're being tempted right now. You're, he tempts us all the time, doesn't he? He tempts us. He tempted Job. That's what he's doing. He tempted Job to doubt God, the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of God. He's tempting Job. That's a, this whole book is about temptation. You've been tempted to doubt the goodness of God probably this week. I'm tempted to doubt the goodness of God sometimes. And I do this. This is what God's called me to do full time. Handle these things. And sometimes, sometimes. Tempted Jesus. Matthew 4, Luke 4. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Very famous passages. We'll, we'll go there. He accuses the brothers. Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 5. Listen to this. Then he showed me Joshua, this vision. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand. Here we have something similar to Job going on. Another meeting, evidently. Standing at his right hand to what? Accuse him. Accuse the high priest. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Now I hear people say, I rebuke you, Satan. No, no, no. The Lord rebuke you. You rebuke Satan, he might have you for lunch. Think of the sons of Sceva. Do you know that story in Acts? The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire, the, the, the high priest? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filth, with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove his filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. God accuses you. He says, you're not good enough to be a Christian. You'll just 
But one of the things he said to me over the years is, you just like books. This comes easy for you. You enjoy this kind of thing. And this Reformed stuff, you know, you like that kind of thing. You're not a Christian, though. You just like to get up and talk to people. Or maybe he says, you're too sinful to be redeemed. You're too dirty. You need to clean yourself up and then go to church. And, of course, you're never going to do that, right? That's what's going on here in Zechariah's vision. Joshua, he's dirty. He's filthy. He's making this claim on him. And God says, no, I'm, going to, I'm giving him righteousness. I'm giving him spotless garments. And that's what happens when you come to Christ, isn't it? Your sins have been washed. You've been washed white as snow. You've been clothed in pure vestments and a clean turban put on your head. The righteousness of Christ has clothed you and has fitted you for heaven, has made you righteous. And that's the good news we preach, isn't it? When Satan accuses you, that's what you tell him. I have the righteousness of another standing for me. He's praying for me right now in heaven. That's how we vanquish the devil, isn't it? Because we have one who's always praying for us. He's tempting us all the time. And we're, we have one praying for us all the time. We see this, though, beautiful illustration there in Zechariah 3. We spend a lot of time on that, but we won't. Move on. And he's accusing Job here. Job, you only follow God because you know what side your bread is buttered on. Because we know that untested faith surely, and especially in the midst of such prosperity, surely can't prove much. Right? You've not tested him. Come on. And I think the devil's getting at something here. Because we sometimes wonder, well, we're Christians. Why can't we be the king's kids and just have all the riches and have all a trouble-free life? Because we want that, right? A drama-free life. I want that. You want that. Well, drama-free life would cause us to trust in us and not him, right? We have to cling to him. Job had to cling to him. Job worshiped, as I said last week, not not in spite of his affliction, but Job worshiped God out of his affliction. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His impulse, his first impulse, his, his default setting was to worship the God, to kiss the rod that had smitten him. That was his first impulse. Is that your impulse? Is that my impulse? He tempts us. He uses us. And he uses us to discourage and falsely accuse others. Watch, watch it here now. Sometimes he uses us. He uses us as instruments. Especially in the church. I mean, we face a similar temptation as Job's friends. I mean, we may not tell somebody this is the consequence of their sin. We might. We might think that. We might not say it. We're too polite to say it. But we quickly condemn others when they don't agree with us on some secondary theological issue. Or maybe all of our political views. Very quick to condemn, aren't we? You know, I can't believe they don't, they don't believe in homeschooling. They should, surely they're not Christians. And I say that because I've been tempted a long time ago to say that, and how sinful is that, right? But we do this all the time. Well, they've got to be wrong about that. Here's a secondary, third-level issue, and they say they're just not even Christians. I'm not saying people reject the Trinity, reject the deity of Christ, of course, but I mean, they, they disagree with us. And so we say, ugh. Or they say, I'm only a four-pointer or a three-pointer. We go, ugh. They're less than we are. I had a, had a guy who wrote an article for TGC one time that got a big readership. And it was about how much I appreciated my childhood church, even though it wasn't Reformed. And a guy wrote me, he said, I'm an Arminian. He said, I really appreciate that. He said, I always just felt like you, you Reformed people felt sorry for the rest of us. And I thought, that's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. That's our temptation. And that's Job's friend, just taking good doctrine mostly and then misapplying it. Demanding things other people aren't convinced of, right? 
we got to be really careful. Again, I, I know that's been my temptation in the past, so I'm guessing that's probably yours as well, right? And we, we can, I mean, even as our, our elder board, we can disagree on some second and third tier issues as, as elders. We, we, we have to. And, and we should be able to do that in the church and not accuse others. But see, here's what Satan does. He accuses us of sin, back to, back to him, but he hides the remedy. He convinces us the only remedy for our sin is false, right? It's like having cancer, but not want to get, don't go to the doctor. You'll get over it. No. I mean, his goal is to drive us to despair rather than repentance. Don't repent. Fall into despair. Look inside yourself. It's therapy. You need therapy, right? I'm really tired of hearing about that, but it's true. Look inside yourself. Don't repent. I mean, Christ calls us to forgiveness and repentance and makes it available in him, but Satan hides the gospel's truth from us. He blinds us to its goodness and its mercy and its grace. Even when we try to work ourselves to heaven. Thirdly, he lies and twists the truth about God and man. I mean, think about Eden. Think about the temptation of Jesus. He's a murderer. John 8, 44. He was a murderer, Jesus said from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. That's his native tongue. He's lying all the time. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the ultimate false teacher, the ultimate cult leader. He's behind all the teaching of all the false religions in the world and throughout history. He's behind Joseph Smith. He's behind Muhammad. He's behind Buddha. He's behind the Watchtower Society. And any religion or any worldview that denies the sufficiency and deity and the, the, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for salvation, he is behind. Make no mistake, he hides the remedy. He sought to kill Jesus. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He was a murderer. He wants you. He wants to have you. He wants to murder you. That's why he's, what he's working toward. And he's very subtle. And you may say, well, I got, you know, he's not going to murder me. Well, he, he's, he wants to. He's not going to leave you alone. He lies. He twists the truth. This is what Job's friends, they came. They came and they, they twisted the truth. They didn't twist the truth so much as they, they made it all about reaping and sowing. Job, you've sinned. You must be, uh, God is disciplining you. You must have sinned egregiously. Everything is about immediate retribution for sin to them. All of it. That's their argument. I think it was... Calvin, who said he, he makes, they make, a, his three friends make great arguments in a terrible way, and Job makes a bad argument, or, or a good argument in a bad way. And I think that's right. They misapply the truth. It's all about reaping and sowing. That's their, that's their one doctrine. If, you, if God is judging you, it's because you've sinned grievously against him and you won't repent. You're a big sinner, you need to repent. It's, everything was about that. And yet God said What? You have caused me to smite Job without cause. There's nothing in Job. This is a test, and only a test. And of course, Job doesn't know this. He's a deceiver. He deceives. Romans, or Revelation 12, 9, the deceiver calls him the deceiver of the whole world. And Jesus' temptation, Satan sought to do what? To deceive him. And if he could have successfully done that, caused Jesus to sin, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. We would be on a slow road to hell. If he had been successful. And one of his most effective tactics is to instill doubts in us about God. Luther is a great example, the great reformer of this. Roland Bainton, my favorite Luther biographer, writes, the, the content of Luther's depressions, he was depressed a lot, the content of his depressions 
was always the same. The loss of faith that God is good and that he is good to me. That's the thesis of this whole series. Is God good? Because your generation, most of you are a lot younger than me, you're quite a bit younger than me. My generation asked the question, is it true? Your generation is asking, is it good? That's the question. Is God good and is he good to you? Is he good to me? That's the question, right? And that's what Job asks and that's what we ask probably every single day. Okay, he's sovereign, but is he good? Because if he's a tyrant, then it doesn't matter if he's sovereign, right? You have the, you have the, the Mohammedan, you have Allah. He's a tyrant. Allah is a tyrant of a God. Who would want to serve that God? Not me, not you. He's a false God, right? He's a tyrant. That's what you have if you have the God who is not either not all powerful or not all good or both. And one of Satan's best schemes is to claim to be doing good, like sending teachers into the church who seem to be skilled with the word. They mix a little bit of truth with their... They spoil the living waters of God's word by mixing in a little bit of a false doctrine. I think you have that now with the, uh, the drive to include critical race theory in the church. You have good, we, don't, we hate racism, and we do. And boy, we don't want to go there, and we don't. But then we start to mix in a little bit of sort of a secular worldview, and we put that alongside Scripture as being sort of interpretative tools, we call it. Sounds good, right? So we have sound hermeneutics and then some interpretative tools to help us understand humanity. We just need the Word of God. That's a little error, just a little bit. Watch out. He's very subtle. Very, very subtle. Or there's the gay Christian. I wouldn't, we wouldn't love these people, and I agree. They need Jesus, and they do. But then I've got Christian friends. I saw a woman quoted last week, wrote a very popular book called Jesus and John Wayne. Sparring with my friend Denny Burke this week on Twitter, and I should have known better, but saying that, well, you know, we, I have many, many LGBTQ Christian friends in my church. That's not loving those people, is it? Being mean to them is not loving them, but of course not. No, having them come in here at the center of the gospel, loving them, being gracious enough to say, this, I mean, Satan hides the remedy. We want to show you the remedy, right? Free from this godless lifestyle. That's what, not, not identifying as this or I've got this idea. Forget all that. That's secular thinking. No, being transformed. That's what we're here for, beloved, this morning. And every Sunday, we're here for transformation. Not just information, but transformation. Yes, information, but leads to transformation. If we're here just for information, then we might as well go to a lecture. Information. If you're studying theology just to fill your head with knowledge and information, stop studying theology. I pray that God will enable it to make that 12-inch trip from here to here and transform you by the renewing of your minds and changing of your hearts. That's what we're here for. And we want them to come. Do we want them to come with, be here with us? Absolutely. Invite your neighbors. Invite your gay neighbors. We've got, we have gay neighbors, and we've invited them. We'd love to see them come. I'd love to see them sitting right down there here in the gospel. We'd love it. We're not going to say you're fine, you're okay, and I'm okay, are we? We want that just to condemn them to a godless eternity, and yet Satan's very subtle. Because that sounds very mean. When I said, well, that's kind of mean, Pastor Jeff. What kind of shepherd are you? Satan, accuser of the brethren. You see the accusation there? He schemes against God's people. He's always scheming. He always schemed against Job in three things God wants you to do. Erwin Lutzer says, and I think this is right, turn away from the will of God, turn away from the word of God, turn away from the cross of Christ. 
he can turn you away from those things, he's got you. He's a tool to carry out God's will, including testing believers. That's what we see in Job, isn't it? He's a tool. God's devil to carry out God's will, including testing believers. See this in Job 1 and 2. A lion, yes, but as Spurgeon well put it, he's a lion on a leash. And he only has as much slack as God gives him. Here, God so sets the rules. You can touch Job. You can touch his family. Who sets the rules? You can't touch Job. You can't kill him. God makes the rules, right? God's a five-star general. God makes the rules. He's a lion on a leash. He's God's devil. He has as much leash as God gives him. God's servant. What do you think about that? I want to argue he's God's servant. Yeah. Satan has a, has a job, Job and Job here. Satan has a job that God has ordained him to do. Job tells us this, right? I think we get this from Job. He has a job God has ordained him to do. He's been doing it awfully well for centuries. He's going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. That's what he's doing. That's his job. He's going to walk past your house. He's going to walk past this church or his minions. I don't know who it is, how they divvy up the workload. I don't know. But I know they do. And he's walking up and down to and fro on the earth. He wants to have us. His job as God's, I want to call it his submissive opposition, is to search men and women and see if there's anyone who's genuinely godly and faithful to God. You're going to be tested. You may have already been tested. And you will be tested. If you have, you will be again, right? That's how God makes you more like Jesus. How he causes you to trust him more. But Satan, Satan plays a part in this. He's God's pawn. He, God says there is, there, there is a godly man. His name is Job. And here's the illustration, supreme example God gives. And he uses Satan in at least three ways. One, to judge the unconverted. God allows Satan to cause spiritual blindness throughout the world in the minds of those who will not embrace the gospel. Your lost friends and loved ones, what do they need? They need their blinders removed. Because the God of this world has blinded them. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul wrote, Our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from hearing, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You're serving one of two people, either God or Satan. Really, either your eyes are opened or Satan has blinded your eyes. God uses Satan to refine the converted. Secondly, he, always, Satan always opposes God's people. Job is one of the clearest examples of this in all of Scripture. So did Job's trial come from God or the devil? What say ye, Christ fellowship? Is this a trial from God or the devil? I hope you know the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. Would you accept that answer on an exam? Professor, I would. Because the answer is yes from God and the devil. Yes. The immediate cause of Job's suffering is what? It's Satan, right? Immediate cause. But the ultimate cause was God. Satan can touch God's children only with God's approval. This is true of Peter. Remember we looked at Peter last week in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked me to sift you as wheat. 
I'm going to let him. You're going to deny me three times. But I, Jesus said, have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so Jesus is praying for you. The difference between Satan testing you and an unbeliever is Jesus is praying for you and you will persevere. And the unbeliever, they will be blinded more and more and more and more. You have an advocate at the right hand of the Father right now praying for you. And that's the difference. And you can have confidence that you won't, you won't go away being lured, being caught and captured and reeled in by Satan's wiles. So God uses Satan to judge the unconverted, to refine the converted. Why? Because Satan blew all his winds at Peter. The chaff was taken out. The, only the wheat remained of Peter. He became a, a, a lion for the gospel after that, didn't he? He strengthened Peter's faith. Our lives are in God's hands, not Satan's. So we need not fear. And Satan wants us to think of him as if he were an independent agent to be caught off guard by his schemes, to paralyze us with fear, and we need not, although we need to take him seriously. And Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and later Elihu, were sent by Satan to give Job another blow, I believe. That's what that's about. The whole thing is his friends coming to judge him and discourage him and to cause him to mistrust God who pays back every little infraction even when you haven't sinned with suffering. That's what God wants you to think. Thirdly, God uses Satan to discipline the disobedient. I mean, think about it. This is big boy theology. So we love theology, right? But again, I mean, it's transformation. God sent a harmful spirit to harass King Saul. God sent it. First Samuel says God sent it. A harmful spirit. We assume a demonic spirit. I don't know. Harass Saul. Second Samuel 24, 1, 1 Chronicles 21, 1. Samuel says, first Second Samuel 24, 1, David, God incites David to take a census in Israel. Then in First Chronicles 21, 1, Satan incites David to take a sinful census of Israel. Who did it? They did it. God used Satan to entice David to take the census. He is God's devil. A lion on a leash. Is there any doubt, biblically, that Satan is a means God uses to achieve his ends? Showing that you're not a believer, and leading you further away, or leading you more to Christ and more to maturity. Because you flee to him as your mighty fortress, as your shelter. God is not the author of sin and does not tempt us to sin. So all that to say we must not take Satan lightly. He is not a court jester. He's not a clown. I don't think he has a tail or horns. I don't think he is fluorescent red in color. He's a potent enemy. His singular goal is to steal, kill, and destroy God's people. So how do we battle him? Well, Scripture gives two ways, and we, this is perfect as we head toward, as we begin to think about the Lord's Supper and preparing our hearts. Because you're going to do battle with Satan and slap leather with him every day of your life. The world, the flesh, and the devil, we're focused on the devil today. And he will use the world and the flesh. And he's often the agent behind these means, I think, to, to tempt us. First, we resist him. First Peter 5, 9 and 10. Resist him, Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Job refused to believe he was entitled to the good life. And that showed that he was a believer. He believed God's glory was more important than his comfort. Do you? Do I? We resist Satan by seeing God's glory, not our own glory, as the ultimate reason for our existence. Because at heart, we are glory thieves. We want to steal what rightly belongs to God. In our boasting, in our arrogance, in our pride, we, we're glory hounds. We're glory thieves. We want the glory, right? I mean, look at social media. What is that? But just a big echo chamber of glory thieves. All of us. I include me in that. I'm on there. I just quoted it what it's about at its most fundamental level, right? How many followers do you have? How many likes did you get? Goodness, I don't get enough likes on that. No one even saw it. How terrible. It's all about me. We're narcissists, aren't we? And yet God will share his glory with no man. So we must live every part of our lives in obedience to his word with a heart aim of glorifying and enjoying him forever. That's the chief end of man. That's why I quote that to my children every chance I get and to you every chance I get. Remind us of why we are here. We resist him that way by knowing his glory and not our comfort is ultimate. We resist him by fleeing when tempted to sin. Remember Joseph and Potiphar's wife all those weeks ago? She wanted to get him to come to bed with her and to lay with her. And he said no. And he fled and left his robe in her hand. And of course he went to jail for it. But he was pure and God rescued him. When you're tempted to lust, flee. Say no, pray for grace to say no in anger when you, you're going to be volcanically angry. And I mean, I, boy, these are temptations are near and dear to me, especially the anger. Pray to God, flee, flee, just remove yourself from the situation. Maybe that's what it means. I've learned that over the years. When I get really mad about something, when Georgia loses to Alabama again, I just go for a walk. I go for a walk. Because I was in a bad mood. And yeah, that's stupid, but I was in a bad mood. So I took the dog for a long walk, right? I didn't kick the dog thought about it. <laughs> he is a dog, right? I love dogs. I mean, come on, come now. How inconsistent would that be? Flee. Maybe it's gossip and slander, but be slow to speak, quick to listen. As I've quoted here, and I say in my book on this, my dad loved to say, Jeff, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Boy, he, I needed to hear that. Maybe that's how we flee. That's one. We resist him. Second, we put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6. I'm just going to, we're not going to read that. Read that this afternoon. 6, 10 to 18a. Read that this afternoon. We'll trust you to do that. Six pieces of armor and militant prayer. Here they go. Just very quickly. We're fasting on the belt of truth. Paul seems to have in mind our confidence that comes from the certainty about the truthfulness of the Word of God. That's why we preach the Word every Sunday here. We don't preach politics. We don't talk about, uh, you know, the, 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 the COVID-19 or anything like that or the Democrats or the Republicans or the donkeys or the, the elephants or whatever. We talk about the Word of God because that's the transforming agent and our confidence is in that. And we've been criticized because we don't talk about politics, and we don't talk about the shots, all the stuff, but I don't care. We preach what we do know, and it's this book is what we need, and we won't preach it. We're not going to preach anything else. You can find plenty of churches that will talk about vaccines, if that's your ballgame. The Word of God, because that's what we need. I need to have my, my anger confronted on Sunday. 
I need to have my gossip, my tongue confronted on Sunday, right? All those things are all well and good. I'm not saying those aren't important, but I'm saying we need to have this confronted. I need my sin confronted. I need to know how to fight the devil. And yet we think, well, there's something better. Great. Plenty of churches are giving you something better. We just want to be faithful. Whether that's 16 or 1,600 of you, we want to be faithful, right? We're not perfect, but we do our best to be faithful because we believe in this word here and everything it teaches. And I think most of you do too. Six pieces of armor, the belt of truth. That's what we preach and that's what we do because that's what we need. The breastplate of righteousness. Job was an upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. He's living a righteous life. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ, yes, but living a righteous life. Thirdly, as shoes for your feet, readiness given by the gospel of peace. He's drawing on Isaiah 5, 52, 7. A messenger takes the gospel to others, and he has confidence in the gospel, right? That's what he's speaking of here. We go about, we roam to and fro in absolute confidence in the gospel that when we proclaim it with, uh, to others, when we get the salt out of the salt shaker, it will do its work. It will convert you. I can't convert you. If I talk you into it, somebody else far more clever than I am can talk you out of it. It's the gospel. Fourth, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And a Roman shield was large enough to cover the whole body. It was made of thick wood covered by animal hide, dipped in water so it would, it would, uh, the, flaming, uh, the flaming arrows of the enemy would be extinguished. And that's the picture. Satan is always throwing darts at you, accusing you, deceiving you, telling you things that are false, telling you things about other people, look down on other people, all these messages. There have never been more messages in the history of the world than there are right now coming at you day and night. Just pick up your phone. Not right now. You know it's true. We need the shield of faith to, to trust God more than our eyes can see and have an unflagging trust in the Lord and Him. Fifthly, the helmet of salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. This is the believer's ground of confidence in the faithfulness of God that He will complete the salvation He's begun in you. Job in Job 19.25 said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. This is his confidence. I know my Redeemer lives. Do you know your Redeemer lives? And he will last stand upon the earth no matter what we see, no matter who's in the White House, no matter what kind of pandemic is going on. My Redeemer lives and your Redeemer lives, beloved. He lives. He lives. And as the old gospel song says, he lives within my heart. He does. Last, he will stand upon the earth. That was Job's confidence. And in his flesh, he would see God, and I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and none another will see him one day. Persevere, brothers and sisters. Walk with God. Stay with, stay with it. He's coming back. He's coming back. And to judge the living and the dead, he's coming back for you. It could be today. It could be today. Are you equipped in the helmet of salvation? Is it buckled on? Are you the chin strap buckled are you wielding the sword of the Spirit? The last one here, this is both an offensive and defensive weapon. This is it. The Word of God. When Satan says, God is not good, you quote the Scriptures back to him. When Satan says, you're a terrible sinner, no one could ever save you, say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Right? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live by faith, I live in the Son of God. In the flesh, I live by the Son of God. Faith in the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You quote that. Of you, if you're in Christ, right? And no devil in hell can ever talk you out of that. 
fruit of the Spirit. That's why we say read through the Bible in a year. Memorize the Scripture. You need it. You will be eaten alive. If you don't know this book and get to know this word, you will be eaten alive. You have no chance in this war. You will be torn to pieces. I could illustrate this with recent football illustrations, but I will not do that. You will be torn to pieces. And he says, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Militant prayer. We are not home yet. We are not the church victorious. We are the church at war, brothers and sisters, and we pray militant prayers. Pray for your children. Satan wants to have them. Pray for your co-workers. Satan wants to have them. He had some of them. Pray for this church. He wants to tear this church apart. He wants to discourage us. He wants, to, he wants this church to not exist anymore. And I've told you before, I want this church to be famous at the gates of hell for faithfulness, unswerving faithfulness to the word. I want us to be famous there, not famous here. Militant prayer. That's how we resist him. That's how we fight him. We go to war. You're at war. You're not at rest. Luther had a keen awareness of the devil. If you go to his study today where he, in Germany, Wittenberg, you will see ink spots on the way where he threw his inkwell at the devil because he knew he was real. He might have overdone it a little bit, but I don't mind that. <laughs> Sometimes we take him lightly. I don't want you to after today, if you did. We should obsess over him, but we must take him seriously. Servants are going to serve. You can go ahead and be at your stations, get ready to serve the Lord's Supper. We're just going to go right into the Lord's Supper here. I want to tie these together because I think they tie together well, as always. Genesis 3.15. The enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent continues. I think that's setting the stage for the rest of the Bible throughout history. In the book of Revelation, I interpret by that. It's just a recap of the war that's gone on throughout history, and we'll go, back, we'll go on until Jesus returns. The war between the seed of the woman, the church, and the seed of the serpent. And he is at war with us now, and he will be at war with us forever. Genesis 3.15, that sets the stage for the entire Bible and all of history. What church history is just a, an account of the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, what do we read? What do we catch a glimpse of? Hey, there's a lot of bad news in there. Preacher, oh. come to this table to celebrate good news, don't we? You've heard a lot of bad news here. You've heard about an enemy, a potent enemy. And yet something, a little phrase in Genesis 3.15 from the lips of God, he says, you, you, Satan, serpent of paradise, you will bruise his heel. Bruise the seed of the woman. You're going to bruise his heel. Seed of the woman, well, that's Jesus. You're going to bruise his head. What happened to Calvary? He bruised his heel. He's going to crush your head. What happened to Calvary? It was the bruising of the heel. Christ's fellowship, it was the crushing of the head of the serpent. How do you kill a snake? You cut its head off, right? You cut its head off. You crush its head. You cut its tail off. It can live. It can slither around, you know. Cut its 
head. And that's what Jesus did at Calvary. This one, this one I have spoken passionately about and, and at great length about today, he's a defeated foe. Look at Revelation 12, 12 says about him. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And in these elements, we see pictured, nothing magical about these elements, but we see pictured in these elements the broken body of Jesus, broken for us, and the shed blood that washes away our sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Tell me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's ask God to bless this meal. We'll talk about his future. God in heaven, prepare our hearts to take this supper. God, we take this in solidarity with all the Christians who've lived, who've battled Satan throughout history, and all the churches who are faithful to your gospel today. We battle alongside them, God, for this war for eternity. I pray you'd nourish us today, that you prepare our hearts. If there be hidden sin in us, there'd be something that would keep us from taking this meal. We would repent right now. You'd grant us repentance. We'd be nourished and strengthened in it. We go from here able to live our lives for your glory. Be honored in this, God, we pray now in Jesus' name.